I want to be prepared to confront that witness with his or her own words where they are most vulnerable. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. I'm here today with uh, Jack Scarola. Jack is a graduate of uh, Georgetown University and Georgetown uh, uh, Law School. He is one of the founding partners of the Searcy, Denny, Barnhart, uh, Scarola, and Shipley Law Firm. Uh, he's been practicing law since 1970. 1972, sort of. 73 officially. I began I began practicing as an intern in the local prosecutor's office prior to my admission to the bar. Well, Jack, welcome and I am uh, I'm excited to talk to you as I had shared with you before uh, uh the reason I, you've been on my radar is probably a decade ago I was trying a case against a uh, national trial lawyer, three-week med-mal case, and we're at a break. And I said to him, who is the best trial lawyer you have ever encountered? And this is uh, not an untraveled trial lawyer. And he said, Jack Scarola. I put it in my, uh, my mental folder of, I won't forget that. And uh, now I'm just glad to talk to you. Well, you're beginning with an extraordinary compliment for which I thank you and whoever that individual was, convey my thanks to him as well or her. Well, uh, I, I need to pick a launching point and I, I, I'm not particularly linear in the way I think. So where I'd love to start just because it's uh, fascinating to me is I'd love to start with Jeffrey Epstein and uh, just figuring out when is it and how did you first get involved with the uh, Jeffrey Epstein debacle? My involvement began with a telephone call from a local referring lawyer who had a client who had been a victim of Epstein abuse and who asked for my assistance. And when I heard her story, I was more than happy to get involved. Do you have any ballpark from a timing perspective of how long ago that was? Over a decade. And uh, what a journey it has been. It has been, it has been a very interesting journey. Uh, I've been involved in a lot of long-term projects. It is not unusual in my practice to get involved in cases that extend uh, over a decade. Um, I've been fortunate because many of those have been extremely interesting legal endeavors, and the Epstein saga ranks among the top of interesting experiences in which I've been involved. And it's not over. I, I know. I, I, you know, there's so many things I want to ask you about it, and I, I don't know where to start, but I think where I, where I want to start is I know you've represented and are still representing 
uh, a number of the victims, but I also know you were involved in the litigation against another uh, trial lawyer. Uh, uh, I think it's Brad Edwards in some fashion. Can you tell us about that piece? Uh, yes. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein was not above using whatever tools he thought might be available to fight back against anyone attempting to hold him responsible for his conduct. And Brad had been among the leaders in a group of plaintiff's lawyers who were coordinating efforts and prosecuting claims against Epstein. Uh, on behalf of various victims, and Brad became the focus of Jeffrey Epstein's attention. And uh, through uh, a matter from Brad's perspective of bad timing, Brad had left the local prosecutor's office in Broward County, had begun practicing on his own when he first started representing Epstein victims, but was then recruited by Rothstein, Rosenfeld, and Adler, a high-profile Fort Lauderdale firm that, as it turned out, was the seat of a massive Ponzi scheme. That scheme was being conducted without any knowledge on Brad's part whatsoever, and he was only there for a very short period of time when the law firm imploded. And when it imploded, it was discovered that one of the means that were being used to induce investors in the Ponzi scheme was to tout claims against Jeffrey Epstein and high-profile individuals alleged to be associated with Epstein. Uh, that case was being used as bait to get people to purchase interests in non-existent secret settlements. Uh, Brad didn't know that the cases he was prosecuting were being used in that fashion, but when it became publicly disclosed that they were, Epstein immediately seized upon those circumstances and filed a lawsuit against Brad, which had a wide variety of claims, including RICO claims, alleging that Brad was a knowing participant in this Ponzi scheme. Epstein had no evidence to support those allegations. Nonetheless, Brad found himself as a defendant defending a claim against a reputed billionaire with virtually unlimited resources, and he was in a very difficult position trying to defend himself while at the same time continuing his vigorous prosecution of claims against Epstein. I had been working together with Brad on the prosecution of the Epstein claims. Uh, Brad asked for my assistance, and I took over Brad's defense, and eventually wound up 
filing a malicious prosecution claim against Epstein on Brad's behalf. Uh, those claims were eventually resolved. Uh, there is a confidentiality agreement with regard to the terms of the settlement, but uh, Brad Epstein continued to vigor very vigorously prosecute claims against Jeffrey Epstein and is continuing to do that today. So that was an effort on Epstein's part that proved unsuccessful and Epstein eventually, in a very unusual move, issued a public apology to Brad for having sued him uh, when there was no evidence to support the false claims that he brought against Brad. Tell me, as you kind of look about, look at that case and that long journey of representing the victims, representing one of the victims' lawyers, just, you know, that, that long of a journey, what for you most stands out in your mind of just like what you've taken away from the experience? What, what has driven you in a decade-long legal battle like that? The courage of the Epstein survivors. Um, Jeffrey Epstein was a master manipulator who had extraordinary tools available to him and the ability with help to target some extremely vulnerable, many extremely vulnerable young women. Uh, some of them have had extreme difficulty getting past what he did to them. Others have had an easier time, but it hasn't been easy for any of them, and it has required great courage on the part of all of them to stand up not only to Epstein himself and the efforts at intimidation that were employed by Epstein and his legal team, but to fight a system that failed to afford them the justice that they should have been afforded many, many years ago. So I think if I take away anything from the involvement that I've had in that experience, it is indeed the admiration for the courage and stamina of the victims in that case. How do you uh, wrestle with just personally uh, the pain in, involved in things like that. I, and you've had just so many different, whether it was when you were a prosecutor um, dealing with murders or the massive range of cases you've handled. Um, sometimes I find myself, I find it hard to not take on the pain personally. Like I, I find sometimes uh it affects me. I don't want it to just to be because I don't know that it's always helpful to feel it all. And I definitely don't like feeling it. Um, how do you deal with that? There are clearly some circumstances that 
you cannot isolate from. You can't do an effective job on behalf of your clients unless you have a significant degree of empathy. Uh, but at the same time, there can indeed be a line which, if crossed, no longer enhances your ability to be able to represent clients, but becomes an obstacle to your doing the best job you can for them. And that's, that, that's a balancing test of varying degrees of difficulty, and it changes case by case. And I, I will tell you, uh, and you know, in our in our pre-interview conversation, you mentioned something about uh, you're asking me at some point in time what it was that I might want to change about myself. And I'll skip ahead and answer that question in the context of what we are talking about right now. Uh, my law partner, Chris Searcy, is the most empathetic lawyer that I know. Chris, Chris exudes empathy, and it communicates in an extraordinarily effective way in front of juries, as a result of which he enjoys extraordinary success. And if there's any single element that I could identify after all of my years of association with Chris. It is that. It is his capacity for empathy. In his office, he has a large bulletin board. And on that bulletin board are pictures of all of the victims who he has helped. And Chris has the capacity to look at that bulletin board and to tell you the story behind every one of those individuals because they became part of his life. I don't have that capacity. I wish that I did. I don't have that capacity. I, I, I believe that I am an empathetic person. I don't think I could do the job that I do without a degree of empathy, but I do not get immersed in the lives of my clients the way Chris immerses himself in the lives of his clients. So in drawing that balance between empathy and impartiality, I think that one of my faults is not being sufficiently empathetic. And that's something that I have, I have tried to change. I find in, in my own introspection that there is a shallowness in my relationship with my clients that I wish were not there. When I finish representing them, while the relationships that we have are very close during the period of time that we are involved in their legal representation, I wish that I were better at following up with them. And I don't do a good job with that. 
and I should. I think it's part of my responsibility to track their post-litigation lives. I really appreciate your vulnerability and uh, and sharing that. I'm 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 candidly wrestling a little bit because I know too much about you to know you're you're a compassionate person too, and so I know about the the Guatemalan family that you brought into your house in Jupiter that lived with you that were an immigrant family. And I know about you sleeping outside overnight to address issue of homelessness. And I know insider stories of how you have uh, even recently encouraged others to be actively giving and involved with uh, COVID-related causes. And so I'm not sure what to do with that other than I can't let it go with, uh, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying you're not empathetic, but how do you reconcile a little bit the, the side of you that clearly is compassionate to people who are, uh, are, have less than, um, it seems like that's a theme of, of who you are as a person. I, I believe that it is who I am as a person. Um, I, I am involved in uh, a great deal of community work, and I have been for a long time, and I have a, an extraordinarily supportive wife who shares those same views. Um, I didn't take the Guatemalan family in. We took the Guatemalan family in. And we've been doing things like that for a very long time. And we always find that without exception, when we extend ourselves to help somebody else, we benefit far more than what we give. But we have been extraordinarily blessed, extraordinarily blessed. And when I weigh what we give against what we have received, we're still, we're still short on the giving side. There's still a lot more giving that needs to be done in order to balance those scales, if they could ever be balanced. Um, we, we've got five amazing children, five amazing children-in-law. We've got 20 grandchildren, all of whom are healthy and happy. And right now, we've got a big house with Quite a few empty rooms, although the kids seem to keep coming back for one reason or another, and we love to have them do that when they do. There's no possible justification for knowing that there's somebody out there who needs a place to stay, and we've got a seven-bedroom house with empty bedrooms and not offer them the opportunity to be with us. And just benefit enormously every time that has occurred. Um, and, and there have been many occasions where that has happened, and we have never 
once regretted going out of our way to do that. I, I do want to ask you just because I'm I, I'm I'm curious, but I also like to mine for knowledge and wisdom. How how long have you been married? Fifty one years. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. We celebrated our 51st anniversary this past January. What have you learned that is the key to thriving marriage? Uh, acknowledge that debt as frequently and in as many ways as I can. And when you say that debt, what do you mean? I, I mean the debt I owe to my wife for the success of our relationship. Yes. And I, and I know uh, that you are a very, very hardworking man. I know you've been a very hardworking man your whole career uh, because the culture of your firm is a hardworking culture where Saturdays are normal. Uh, at least Saturday mornings are not uh, rare events. Is that, am I accurate on that? Yeah, you are accurate. Yes. Um, it is probably uh, another failure that I need to acknowledge on my part that I, I probably come close to fitting the definition of a workaholic. Um, that's another reason why I am so indebted to Anita. She tolerates that. Um, but what I try to do and have grown pretty successful at doing it is uh, I bring my work home with me. And I have a very nice office at home, but the office is off on the other side of the house and away from the action. And growing up myself as the oldest of six children, I have learned how to concentrate in the midst of confusion. So I choose to work not back in the office, but in the middle of whatever's going on. And I, I am a part as much as I can be a part of what is going on. Um, I, I, Tried not to miss children's activities and try not to miss grandchildren's activities, but it is not unusual for me to have my cell phone in my hand while I'm sitting in the stands and watching a, a girls' volleyball game or a boys' lacrosse game, and I am texting and emailing simultaneously while I am participating as a parent or grandparent in whatever those activities may be. So I, I work hard, um, but I but I play hard also. Um, I enjoy time with my family. Uh, we enjoy being together, and we are we are fortunate to have the opportunity to spend a lot of time together. Four of our five children live within less than a 10-mile radius of us. 
Our oldest daughter and her husband and their four children are in Tallahassee, but not so far away that we don't get to see one another on a fairly regular basis. The local kids are around all the time. So that, that, part, that part is good. I, I asked your partners, what is Jack Scarola the best you've ever seen at? And what I hear is cross-examination. And, and it is, uh, they're not downplaying other parts, but they, when, when, when they think of you, they think this guy is as good of a cross-examiner. And, and uh, I would love to, you know, knowing there's a wide range of lawyers that listen, how do you prepare? What, what are the things that, that you uniquely do so that when you're getting ready to cross-examine someone, whether it's in a deposition or an arbitration or a trial, um, what are some of the things you do to prepare for that? I, I want to know the person that I am deposing as well as I can possibly know them. Uh, if there is prior sworn testimony, I want to know that testimony very well. Answers to interrogatories. Uh, I, I, I want to know those very well. I want to know what that witness has said before, and I want to know how what he or she has said before matches up with facts that I know I can establish independent of that testimony. And obviously, my primary focus is going to be on those areas where what has been said can be shown to be inconsistent with established facts, or what has been said simply doesn't make sense. And I want to be prepared to confront that witness with his or her own words where they are most vulnerable. And then I want to be able to set my ego aside and I want to listen very carefully because no matter how I have strategized in advance, and no matter how much I have prepared, there are almost always opportunities that arise as a result of the way in which a witness gives an answer that I expected, but I didn't expect it to be given in that way, or the way in which they vary from something that was said previously. Being a good listener, from my perspective, is absolutely the most important characteristic of a good cross-examiner. Someone who goes into cross-examination with a script and is tied to asking the next question on the list can never do an effective job. So 
listening is the most important skill. And to be a good listener, you need to be able to set aside your own ego. You don't want to be there just to listen to yourself, ask your own questions. Get out of the way. Move out of the way, listen, and logic will dictate where you need to go. My my, uh, my very uh, Southern partner says, my ego is not my amigo. <laughs> that I'm going to remember that. That's very good. And I absolutely agree. Um, the, the preparation of the technical preparation, because you, you are a world-class technician. I know your ego would prevent you, your humbleness would prevent you from saying that, but I know you are. Do, do, are you a write out the question an outline bullet points? How, how do you organize We'll start with depositions. How, how do you organize that? I, I am very dependent on the use of yellow stickies. If I'm dealing with a witness who's given prior testimony, I have, I have that deposition tabbed. It's highlighted with key points and the tabs themselves are indexed. So if a witness has said something on a topic at page 14 of the deposition, and he deals with that topic again on page 54, and again on page 97, I know where that topic has been discussed in every location where it's been discussed, and I easily access that through that method of using yellow stickies and tabs that are coordinated. Um, I, I think that that's probably a, a technique that I have found very helpful. Now, others who are far more computer literate than I, I'm sure, have far more effective means to access what it is they'll be looking for during the course of the deposition when they can when they can access it electronically but i'm just far more comfortable with hard copy and with notes in that way and that also enables me to phrase the question exactly as it needs to be phrased for purposes of impeachment at a later time because I'm using the words that appear in the deposition itself, leaving the witness no wiggle room to say, well, um, I, I didn't say that previously. I used these words and those words have a different meaning. So that, that I find to be very helpful. Is the index to the yellow stickies your guide for the flow of the deposition or do you have a separate uh, game plan on what the or the cross-examination do you have a separate outline that flows where you want to go yes I do have a separate outline and it is a it is a topic outline I don't write out my questions in advance um, 
where I need to be very careful about the, the way a specific question is phrased, my outline will include a page reference so that I know that when I ask this question, I've got that deposition transcript page right in front of me and I'm asking the question in the proper way. But again, I, I don't want the outline or the index or the tabs to get in the way of the most important part of my cross-examination responsibilities, and that is listening to the answers that I get, which is what's going to lead me to the next question, not what's on the outline. Mm. Um, I may skip from point number one entirely off the page because I got an answer that takes me off the page. Um, I'll eventually come back to make sure I've covered everything that I want to cover, but I'm listening and I am following the witness's lead. Do you have any uh, strategies that you use when the witness's lead is leading you into never, never land? You know, it's uh, the recalcitrant run on expert, the, they will not answer the question They're They want to tell their narrative, no matter you could say what colors the sky and, and they have a, a totally uh, framed narrative. They're going to say, no matter what your question is, do you, do you have strategies you use to deal with that when the witness is leading you away from where you're trying to go? Uh, I, I do have a strategy that I think has been effective for me that I have used at trial when I know from the experience that I've had with the witness that he is not going to be responsive to the questions that I am asking. And what I have done and found to be effective in the past is I write out the question so that it's right there in front of the jury. They know what the question is. And since this is cross-examination, more likely than not, it's going to be a leading question. And the leading question has only three possible answers. Yes, no, or I don't know. And I write out those answers right beneath the question. And I invite the witness up out of the witness stand to stand next to what is usually an easel with a flip chart. And I will go through a series of questions like that. Doctor, this is the question. Would you please circle the answer for us? I'll give you every opportunity you would like to explain the response, but first I'd like a response. Is the answer yes, no, or I don't know? And if I have a judge who is sufficiently cooperative, and most will be under those circumstances, they'll require the witness to answer the question before they get into a long-winded, irrelevant, speech about what it is they want to say. And 
I'll have a whole series of questions like that on that flip chart. And that's not the last time the jury's going to see that flip chart with the witnesses answers or refusal to answer because there will be witnesses who will not say yes, no, or I don't know, and judges who won't require them to say yes, no, or I don't know, but the jury's going to be reminded of the fact that this was a witness who could not answer a direct question. Not that one, not that one, not that one, and not that one. And we know what the answers to those questions are. So I have found that to be an effective technique. I'm researching and preparing for today, I watched some clips of you in trial. The technology is amazing today. Uh, when you think about it, I can literally go on the internet last night while my wife was watching a, a drama show and, I, and I'm, I'm watching you trying cases that you tried years ago. But they, I noticed you, your use of an Elmo, and it looked like handwritten, your handwriting that you put down on the Elmo. Am I, am I tracking correctly? You are absolutely correct. I, there was a point in time before uh, we, we had an Elmo, uh, before I was comfortable in using it, where I would use the flip chart and my questions would be written out on a flip chart. It took me a long time to write the questions out on a flip chart as opposed to writing them out on a yellow pad. And when I could write them out on, on a yellow pad and just stick in under the elbow, it became a lot faster to be able to prepare. And, and so an elbow has become my, my tool of choice. And I'll basically do the same thing, only uh, I can either have the witness step down and actually write on the yellow pad and it'll be projected by the Elmo, or I'll do it myself. I'll, you know, he'll give the answer. Yes, no, I don't know, won't answer. And I'll write it on, I'll write it there and be able to refer back to that later. Um, I, I, I have a very neat style of printing. My father and my three younger brothers, my father was, my three younger brothers are all engineers. The only expression of that gene in my makeup is my handwriting. So I have, I have a precise architectural style of printing that makes it very easy for me to prepare those things in a legible way. And I would much rather do that as a compromise between low-tech and high-tech than, than to be using PowerPoints and have an electronic, an all-electronic presentation. I find that the, the compromise uh, between high-tech and low-tech by writing things out and projecting them on the Elmo is better than trying to use, for me, it suits my style better than trying to use uh, a, a PowerPoint electronic presentation. It, 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 I, I saw you really do have exceptional handwriting. Uh, <laughs> it, I'm sure it's only matched by your ability to be a good dancer, which I hear you're a good dancer. But I, but I noticed, <laughs> I, 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 
I also saw just thinking of the low tech, high tech, uh, I was pulling it up on my screen so I could see it and it could freshen my memory. Uh, one of the visual aid companies uh, using very high tech demonstratives for a med mal case you tried uh, with the heart and strokes. And, and uh, so, it, you know, it, I, if I can land just for a second on demonstrative aids, what are your thoughts on uh, the most common mistakes you see lawyers making with demonstrative aids uh, today in today's high tech world where you're watching lawyers and you're like, that's not good or that's not effective. And what are some of the things you've done or seen others do that you think that is very effective? I think that there is a significant advantage in representing the little guy against the big guy. And you begin to give that advantage away when you get overly technical, when the presentation is too technologically dependent uh, when you're, you're obviously competing on the same level as the defense with the three lawyers on the other side of the room and all the high-tech equipment and all the fancy stuff that they're doing. I don't like to give that away. I won't, I, I won't, uh, give up an opportunity to use something like uh, an animation that helps a jury to understand some complex medical issue that needs to be presented to them visually in order for them to be able to truly comprehend what's going on. But I prefer the low-tech approach when I have an equally viable means by which to make the point that is low-tech rather than high-tech. Um, I, I remember trying uh, a case called Coleman Parent Holding Company versus Morgan Stanley, and it had to do with the Sunbeam Company and uh, the way in which Sunbeam's books were cooked in connection with a particular transaction. And I was representing a billionaire in that case. Uh, the, the owner of Coleman Parent Holding Company was Ron Perlman, a very wealthy man. But I made the choice that I was going to do as low-tech a presentation on Ron's behalf as I could. And Sunbeam manufactured toasters. And one of the props that was used in both opening statement and closing argument was a bunch of toy appliances that I incorporated into my argument to explain to the jury what went on. And 
there were a lot of different ways that those points could have been made, but I think that it was very effective to have gone to the local toy store and to pick up some toys that helped to explain what this company was all about. Um, there have been a lot of occasions where I have borrowed toys from my children or grandchildren, um, where I have gone out to a store and purchased clay or uh, some swizzle sticks, um, a lot of different things that I think helped me to relate to the jury in a far better way than some high-tech demonstration would have. I'm going to list out some of the kinds of cases that I was just able to pull just from looking on the internet. Murder trials, divorce trial, a divorce case representing high profile uh, professional athletes, uh, wife, multi-million dollar deal, stock fraud cases, defamation, guardianship, business tort cases, tobacco trials, civil rights litigation, election cases, med mal, regular all car crashes, trucking cases, class actions. You have handled, honestly, as the only other person I can think of that I've interviewed or known that has handled as the breadth of cases that you have would be David King, who recently passed away, who I had the privilege of interviewing. What has driven you to such a diverse practice? I am practicing in a firm with some of the finest trial lawyers in the country. They are truly excellent. And they have been truly excellent since the day I walked through the door to begin my civil practice. So I needed to find a way to have a place among such giants in the legal profession. I couldn't go head to head with Chris Searcy and come out on top. And so I became the utility player in the firm. If it came through the door and it didn't fit the traditional practice areas that we are best known for, personal injury, wrongful death, medical malpractice, products liability, although I've practiced in all of those areas, if it came through the door and it didn't fit within that category, they sent it to Scarola to look at. And I was, I was stupid enough to think that I could do it. And so I said yes. And I probably said yes a lot more frequently than I should have. One of 
One of my weaknesses is an inability to say no when I should say no. But once I've made the commitment, I enjoy the challenge. I like getting to learn new areas of the law and applying the skills of a seasoned litigator, a seasoned trial lawyer, to areas where seasoned, well-respected trial lawyers are not actively competing. And so I'm trying cases against lawyers on the other side that don't have the same experience or skill set that I have, and I found that to be a distinct advantage. A lot of them are afraid of the courtroom. A lot of them very rarely try cases. They are litigators, but they're not trial lawyers. And I enjoy bringing whatever degree of skill I have as a trial lawyer into an arena where the people on the other side are unaccustomed to confronting those skills. You're described by those who know you in a healthy way as competitive. I, I am competitive, yes. I don't I don't know I don't know any good trial lawyer who is not competitive. You must you must very much want to win, and you've got to dislike losing a great deal in order to be sufficiently motivated to do this job as well as it needs to be done. Let's, let's uh, drill down a little bit on the asking others for help. For years, you've uh, worked with a team of lawyers. I do the same. I have a team that I work with. And once you have that, that you can't imagine life without a team of lawyers. So here's the question I want to ask you. For someone who's listening to this, who's uh, working on a team and they're not the lead guy, okay? They're not Jack Scarola. They're one of the team members on that team. What advice would you give them on being a good a uh, support person on a team, a good mentee, uh, a good a good team member. What are some? What's what advice would you give them? Pretend you're fearless. Following up on on that last aspect of our conversation, volunteer to do things that you've never done before, and be prepared to put in the work to demonstrate your capacity to be able to do them. Uh, you know, you may never have picked a jury before, but if you're part of the trial team and you feel that, uh, that you're ready or that you can get ready, ask for the opportunity. Don't be afraid to ask for the chance to demonstrate your skills. Okay, so I'm going to say a phrase, a person, a word, and you just first word that comes to mind. Chris Searcy. Friend. Jury trials. Challenge. Jury. Six. The Florida Bar. Working. Depositions. 
Yes. Injustice. No. Justice. Yes. Success. Salvation. Okay, so here we go. I'd, I'd like to get practical. What I'd like to do is uh, just have you give a nugget of wisdom on, on a number of very practical things. And so it's, it's one, two, three sentences of the best advice on different areas. So we'll start with client selection. It is a critical aspect of a successful practice. And it is essential that it be approached as dispassionately as you can approach it. And one of the most important skills to learn is how to say no and the fact that saying no may be the kindest response that you can give to a prospective client. Yeah, that's great. Uh, moving on to jury selection, uh, having uh, picked juries with Chris Searcy, who is clearly one of the best at jury selection that's ever graced a Florida courtroom, what's the best piece of advice you'd give for younger lawyers on picking a jury? I, it, it is the same key as I discussed previously with regard to successfully cross-examining, and that is you have to put your ego aside and learn to listen. Give the jurors as much opportunity as possible to speak and move out of the way to allow them to do it in as non-judgmental a fashion as you can. And don't be afraid about tainting a jury by dealing with difficult subjects. Get them on the table as early in the voir dire process as you can uh, and make sure that you give them the opportunity to express themselves with regard to whatever problem areas exist in the case. Legal writing. Write in English. <laughs> Tell me more, what do you mean by that? It, it is not an opportunity for you to attempt to demonstrate to anyone how erudite you are, how great your vocabulary is, how long a sentence you are able to construct. Write simply and directly. Uh, and it, it is important in your legal writing, as it is in jury selection, to confront the problems head on. Don't, don't, try, don't try to avoid or bury the problems. Deal with them head on. Dealing with uh, aggressive judges. Be respectful at all times. 
but never compromise your client's rights. Don't back down. Dealing with recalcitrant, difficult, pain in the butt, uh, opposing counsel, meaning the ones that just, they grate you, they grate you, they make it personal, they're trying to pull you into the mud, uh, they call you, they're, they're trying to paint you as a liar, and you know the, kind, the, the category I'm talking about, best advice in dealing with that category. Delegate authority to an associate. <laughs> <laughs> How about if you're that associate? <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it, this is a tough enough job when you are dealing with people who act professionally, uh, who, who you can trust, who minimize the, uh, the, the painful aspects of the practice. So when you come across somebody as you have described and we all have uh, you, you've got to do the best you can not to be drawn down into the mud and there is a great tendency to allow that to happen to slug it out with them at their own level um, I, I don't know a lawyer that hasn't been placed in a position where they have done things they've regretted doing because they are responding emotionally to opposing counsel. And you got to do the best you can to control that emotion and to avoid that happening. And when it starts to happen, try to find a way to hit the reset button. Dealing with stress. Share the burden. Share the burden with as many people as you can. Uh, have a staff you can rely on to share the burden. Have associates and partners you can rely on to share the burden. Have a family that you can rely on to share the burden. And don't hesitate to involve them in dealing with whatever stressful aspects of your of your life there may be. I have two questions I ask every person I've had the chance to interview. And, and the first one is, if you were to give one piece of advice to category of lawyers that are, uh, we'll say, new lawyers to 10 years, so say 25 to 35, although it could be 30 to 40 or whatever ages, but the first 10 years, of practice, if you could give one piece of advice to that group, what advice would you give? Make sure that you are in this work because you love it. You are, you are not going to serve your client's interests well. You will not be serving the interests of your firm and you will not be serving the interests of yourself and your family if you continue to do this job when you don't have a love for it or when you have lost that love for 
That's good. Have you seen people uh, leave the practice of law uh, where they hit that point and then ultimately seen uh, a happy ending for those people? Uh, yes, I have. I, I have seen people who have decided this isn't what I expected it to be when I chose to go to law school. I'm not happy in this job, and they have moved on and found happiness elsewhere. Let's shift to a second group. Um, th this is folks that are, say, uh, 45 to 55. They're establishing their career. They have some level of stability in their career, and they've achieved uh, some level of success, but they have a long way to go. They're, they're healthy. They have a lot of energy. What advice would you give that category? It would basically be the same advice, David. Um, it, it becomes even harder to accept the need to make a change if you're not loving what you're doing and the way in which you're doing it, the longer you are entrenched in doing what you're doing and the way in which you're doing it. But I, I've come across lawyers on many occasions who just weren't happy where they were, even if they liked the idea of continuing to practice law, they weren't happy where they were. Uh, and that that's an unfortunate situation. So my advice to that second group would be the same. Love what you're doing or stop doing it. Why does Barnhart say you're a good dancer? What, what, what's, what's your move? <laughs> uh, I grew up on Long Island. Uh, Nita and I actually met while she was still in high school. I was in my first year at Georgetown. But um, the, the Long Island culture included uh, a great affinity for dancing. And I, I spent a lot of time waiting on tables and tending bar. And after work, we'd go out to late night clubs. And I, I would dance while I was working. But um, we'd also go out dancing afterwards. It's just something that I enjoy doing. And I've been dancing with Nita a long time. So it doesn't look like after 51 years that we're on a blind date. We, we, know how to move each other around a dance floor. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, uh, Jack, I appreciate your time. Uh, I really appreciate, I'm married to my uh, high school girlfriend. I appreciate the example as a, as a humble husband, as a committed father and grandfather, uh, as a, a leader within a law firm of leaders and uh, your heart for justice, which I know is uh, so deep within you. Uh, and I do not take for granted all the time you spent with me today. So thank you very, very much. David, thank you. It is rare to have the opportunity for introspection that you have provided. And uh, I, I thank you for giving me that chance.